For our fall series, we've been looking at the letter uh, called First Peter, written by the Apostle Peter. It was written to Christians who were scattered all throughout what is modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor in that time, and they all had one thing in common. These, these Christians to whom Peter was writing were very surprised and very shaken by all the suffering that they were experiencing. There was something in them that thought, well, now that I'm uh, a, a Christian, I'm, I'm living this whole new life, that maybe life will be easier, that life will be smoother. And in fact, in many ways, they found it to be exactly the opposite. This morning's passage that we just heard read, it, it's all about something that if, if you have it, can get you through the hardest challenges in life. This passage is all about something that can get you through even, even when you're being rejected by people, people whose opinion means a lot to you, even when you're experiencing great struggle within yourself, feels like a war happening within. It's something that if you have it, if you know it deep down, you can make it through suffering. You can make it through things you never, ever thought possible. It's something that can help you hold on to hope when it seems like everything else is falling apart in your life. That something is purpose. Purpose. So let me try to illustrate this, this a little bit. Um, some things that are challenging and hard in life. One of these things, I'm witnessing this a lot in our family because we have some long-distance runners in the family, and I'm not one of them. But running a long, long time is challenging, and it's hard, and it hurts. Or does anybody out there like moving, moving their homes? We moved our office last week. It's challenging. It's difficult. Does anybody out there like standing in line? I love standing in line. It's so great. Nobody? Nobody. Or on a more serious note, when you're suffering physically through some kind of treatment, physical therapy, or even surgery, and all these examples, you probably will ask, why am I doing this? That's what I ask anytime I run. Why am I doing this? I say, well, there's a purpose so I can be fit and healthy, so I can be a better runner. Why am I moving? So we can move into a better office. Why am I standing in line? Well, if I'm standing in line at Disneyland, then okay, I get to go on a ride. That's the purpose. Why am I receiving this treatment, going through this therapy? Why am I going in for the surgery that will hurt so I can be healthy? Purpose. If you don't have an answer to the question of why am I doing this, <laughs> then you will stop. You will give up. You'll get out of line. You'll stop running. The point is, if you have purpose in life, you can have hope. And Peter is saying here, every Christian has purpose given to them by God. Suffering, struggle cannot take it away. In fact, it's often in suffering and in struggle where we discover it 
Sometimes for the first time, and it's in suffering and in struggle where it actually becomes deeper and we own it more fully. There's so much here that points to this purpose. But my focus will be this morning on something that Peter repeats twice in this text. And what he's saying is if you're a Christian, your purpose is to live a priestly life. A priestly life. Now let's unpack that. Uh, first, we need to see the position we have. Then we'll look at how that shows us the purpose uh, that we are given this priestly life. And lastly, we'll look at how can we live it? What, what is the power? How can I do it? So first, the position we have. Before we talk about purpose, we first have to talk about Position, that's the movement of this passage. If you look at this, most of what Peter is saying is, here's who you are. Here is who you are. This is the teaching of Christianity. Before we can find or live out our true purpose, first we have to know our position, our position in life. Now, we kind of don't like the idea of positions or titles, um, but then again, we, we kind of do like it. We don't like positions and titles because we know that we judge people based on like the titles they have, the positions they hold, say, in their profession. And we don't like it because we know we, we can be judged by whatever position we have or don't have. And we, we really want everything to be about equality an equal opportunity, which is a good thing. But at the same time, we seek out positions. If somebody says, oh, wow, you, you are the CEO, or I'm, my goal is to be the CEO of this company, or to move up and to be the director of such and such a department, or p- to be the chief uh, doctor on staff. These positions we aspire to, not just because of the prestige and the title that comes with it or the pay. It's not just that but it's because of the work and the greater purpose that comes with these positions. That's what draws us in. It says, I want to do that. That's a great purpose. Now, if, if we don't know our position in a company, in a, in a community, or in life, we won't know our purpose. If we aren't sure of our position, if we aren't sure of it, if we don't know for sure what it is, we won't have the confidence or the courage to fulfill our purpose when things get hard. Now, this is kind of obvious. You can't start a job until you have the position, right? If something happens, when you are given the new position, you are hired to be vice president of this, head of this department, director of that, and you start to do the work. I'm saying all of this because this is the logic of this passage right here. Your position in life and your purpose in life are vitally connected. Look at verse 4. Peter is saying, when you come to Jesus and become a Christian, you have a new position and you have a new title. It's the most choice. It's the most honored position and title that you could ever have. And actually, he doesn't just give us one title here. He takes a whole bunch of positions and titles and he brings them all together from many places in Scripture and says, here it is. This is one of the most dense and rich descriptions of our position and our identity that we are given simply by faith in Christ. 
Now, what is it? A Christian, Peter says, has the same uh, position and titles as Jesus. Verse 4, he's a living stone. So you are living stones in a spiritual house. He's the perfect priest. You are a priesthood. He is choice and honored. The one who believes in him is also choice, chosen, and honored who will never be put to shame. You are chosen and royal. You are his people. Now, we need to remember a little bit about the background of the people who received this letter, the people whom Peter is writing to. Because of their faith in Jesus, many of them had lost status. Many of them had lost position in life. All the places where they had looked to to find their identity, all the ways they had answered the question, who am I? Almost all these ways, now they were finding, because they identified with Jesus, they were finding rejection. They were being alienated. They were being pushed aside. They were being misunderstood. The, the modern term for this, they were being ghosted. People were ghosting them and saying, I don't know you. And that was very disorienting for them, to be treated like a stranger and an exile. Here's what Peter is saying. Your primary position in life, your primary identity is in Jesus and as a Christian. Now, it's important to say that this doesn't erase or remove other aspects of our identity, but it subordinates them. We could say it relativizes them all underneath our primary identity in Christ. Peter's saying, by faith in Jesus, you have a position, you have an identity more basic, more fundamental than all those other positions and identities. Look at verse 2-9. So here's what he's saying. Peter is piling up all these descriptions of position and identity in Christ. He's taking them from the Old Testament. These are descriptions of the position that Israel had in the Old Testament. God said, here is your position in life before the world. From Exodus 19, most of them in Hosea chapter 2. Peter says, if you are a Christian, if you are a part of the church, here is who you are. Here is your position. You're a chosen race. So your culture, your race, are not your primary identity. Culture and race, those might be two of the deepest things that are in us, in us that we don't even know how deeply affect us and form our identity. Peter says, you're a part of a new race, now made up of all races and cultures. That's primary. He says, you're a royal priesthood. Your profession and your work or your social class in the world are now not your primary identity. Kings, royalty, that's the highest status you can have. Priests in the ancient world, that was the most sacred job you could have. Peter says, now, this is your primary identity. You are royalty, you are priests. He says, you're a holy nation. The country you live, the nation you happen to live in, is not your primary identity. You are a part of a new nation, a citizen of heaven. And then he says, you are a people for God's own possession. Even your relationships, who you belong to, that's not your primary identity. Your relationship with God is now primary. You are his first before you are anyone else's. You belong to him. So all this is your position in the world. 
Peter says. How do we get that position? It's there at the beginning of the text in verse 4. It's how it all begins. He says, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, simply by coming to him, this isn't something you earned. It's given to you by grace. And it cannot be taken from you when persecution and hardship and suffering and struggle come and they cause you to question your worth, to question your value, to question your position in the world, God says, here is who I say you are. No matter what anybody else is saying about you, this is your worth, this is your value, this is your position. The first three words in verse 9 are some of the most important words in all of the Bible. But you are. But you are. This is your unshakable identity, your position at your core. Let me just let me just try to apply this. For our students, middle school, high school students, college students, often how we feel is, often what we're told is, you are your grades, right? You are your popularity. You are your friend group. You are your abilities. You are your looks. Those things define your position in the world. Verse 9, God says, no, but you are. All of us in our world today, how we define ourselves, our position in the world, what we're told, you are your race, you are your culture, you are your country, you are your political party, you are your title and status at work, you are your social class or tax bracket. Whether you are married or single or in a relationship, fulfilled in a relationship or a parent, if you are a parent, then you are what your kids are doing. But God says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If we really believe this, the implications are so vast and so powerful. They, they, they reach into po- politics. They reach into our vocations. They reach into all of our relationships. And Peter's going to develop this. We'll, really, we'll spend the next four sermons looking at that. It's very countercultural. I, I would say the way we can think about that is that people who really believe this and live in this, they are like a magnetic force. On the one hand, there is a repelling force. And on the other hand, there's a great attractive force. For people who say race, culture, nation, status, wealth, those things don't define you. Well, for people who do define themselves in those ways, that's offensive. But there's something inevitably attracting about a community that says it's not about your race, your culture, it's not about your status, it's not about your country, it's not about who you belong to. That type of inclusivity is inevitably attracting. We'll look at that in the coming weeks. The one position I want to hone in on and focus on this morning, though, is the one Peter mentions twice. He says, your position and title in life is priest. Maybe you didn't know, for those of you who are 
my Christian friends, my brothers and sisters, when you became a Christian, you joined the priesthood. You are the priesthood. This uh, idea came alive in the Reformation, went under the banner or the description of the priesthood of all believers. It's not a position for the few. It's not a position for religious professionals. It's for all Christians. And to have the position of priest, what did it mean? It meant access to God. So I don't need anyone else to stand in between me and God. All I need is Jesus. That's true of all believers. That's the priesthood of all believers, access to God. In the Old Testament, only the priests had access to God. If you weren't a priest, even if you were a king, coming into God's presence would bring judgment. But Peter says, you are a priest. It's what you are. It's who you are. And so what you do is acceptable to God because of Jesus. When others don't accept you, when you don't accept yourself, God says you have the position of priest. You are acceptable. What you do is acceptable because you come into my presence and have access to me through Jesus Christ. Peter is saying all this to encourage them with the honor and the position they have for their own sense of acceptance and worth and value. But he's saying this also so that they would remember this position. It also comes with a purpose. The purpose that we are given. Verse 5, Peter says, it's to be a holy priesthood. To be a holy priesthood. I want to look at different aspects of what that means. First, this purpose of being a holy priesthood is a purpose given to us for others. Priests were the one people in all of Israel who were given access to God. This was a holy and honored position. But they weren't given this position just so that they could access God for themselves. They were given this position for the sake of others. What was their job? What's the job of a priest? To have the position of the priest meant your life was dedicated to bringing people to God and bringing God to people. This position was given to the priest for the sake of others. And that's the purpose given to every Christian. Here is the job description, bringing people to God and bringing God to people. And one of the marks of our age and our time is this hunger and this quest to find our purpose. We want to find our purpose in life. We want to find meaningful and fulfilling work. That's how God has wired us. That's a good thing. But in light of what Peter says and what the whole Bible says, what's missing in a lot of our conversations, a lot of our, our searching and our quest to find our purpose and one of, the, one of the reasons we have such a hard time finding it is because we're looking for it for ourselves. And Peter says, the position that you are given, that you are made for, is a position for the sake of others. It's given to us for others. It's also given to us in community. Unlike many of the positions we aspire to, in life that are individual positions that set us apart from others or put us above others to distinguish us, 
The position of the priesthood is something we can only have, and it's something we can only fulfill in community and in relationships with other people. Peter does not say, you're a priest on your own individually. He says, y'all are priests. Second person plural, together you're a priesthood. So this idea of the priesthood of all believers can be misunderstood and uh, misapplied if we think it just means that, oh, I don't need anybody else to experience God. I don't need anybody else to fulfill my purpose that God has given to me. That's not what Peter is saying. He's saying the exact opposite here, in fact. When when he says, you come to Jesus, the living stone, look at verses 4 and 5. He puts you into the spiritual house. You're like the stone, the spiritual stone stuck into and among all these other stones. One stone or brick is not a house. This is the life of worship, of experiencing God and his power and his presence. It only happens when our lives are built alongside of and on top of and underneath, holding up and others holding us up as all these stones built together in this house. Now, if you think about that picture of being a stone crammed in next to other stones, some stones are on top of you, you're holding other stones up. That sounds a little bit uncomfortable. That sounds to me like a little bit claustrophobic. <laughs> and it is. But that's the beauty of what God does in making us the church. He says, you need to be a little uncomfortable. It's going to feel a little closed in at times. But you need this to remember who you are and to remember what you were made for, your purpose. We cannot build our identity ourselves, and the purpose we are given can only be fulfilled in community. Nothing here in this text can be done alone. All the descriptions of our purpose and our position are all plural, a nation, a race, a people, a priesthood. We need to be brought to God by other people. We need others to bring God to us and vice versa. And that only happens in an embodied, living community. That's the church. That's why we need the church. That's why we need this morning. So it's a purpose given to us for others. It's a purpose given to us in community. And it's a purpose given to us to be our primary purpose in life. Just like our position in Christ is our primary position and identity. So the purpose we are given is not a side pursuit. It's not one among many purposes. To be a part of the priesthood is given as our primary purpose in life. Now let's get a little more specific on what that means. How do we bring God to people and how do we bring people to God? There are two purpose statements in the text. So that statements, verse 9, Peter says, you have this position and this purpose so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's what we proclaim. It's what we say. It's how we speak about God. And then down in verse 12, he says, this is all so that people will see your good works 
and glorify God on the day he visits. There's our words and our works, our words and our deeds. That's how we bring God to people and bring people to God. This priestly purpose comes first in all the other callings and purposes that God gives us in this life. Let me see if I can help us all understand what this looks like. Let me share a few examples. If you are a student, you are a priest student. You bring God to all you do, to your schoolwork, to your relationships, and to all your activities. And you are a priest friend. This is a great way to think about what it means to be a good friend. You bring God to your friend. And you bring your friend to God by the words you speak, simple words, and by the good works that you do on their behalf. That's a great friendship. Another example. As citizens, we are priest citizens. We work for the common good. We are priest Americans. We work for the good of our country, but our country doesn't come before our vocation as priests. If we are married, we are priest wives and priest husbands. The purpose of marriage is to draw your spouse closer into God. If we have kids, you are a priest mother or a priest father. That one sounds a little weird to be called a priest mother, but the purpose of parenting is to bring your kids to God and bring God to your kids. Your vocation in the world, you are a priest teacher, a priest lawyer, a priest businessman or woman, a priest doctor, whatever it is. The purpose of your work is to bring God into it and to bring your work to God. Where you live, you are a priest neighbor. In your everyday words and actions, when you throw a block party, knowing the names of your neighbors, praying for them, you're seeking to bring God to them and bring them closer to God. That is our primary purpose. It's the purpose we are given. Now, I just want to pause right here before we get to the final point and just let this sink in. And I'm going to ask you to do something, and it's going to be weird, but I, I'm, I, want, I want you to do this. I want you to turn to somebody who's sitting next to you and say, you are a priest. Let's do it. Let's be weird and awkward. You are a priest. Okay, thank you for humoring me with that. If your faith is in Christ, that is the purpose that you have been given. It feels weird and awkward. That whole little exercise uh, is just meant to help us feel some of that. Because who feels adequate to be called priest? You are a priest. We feel inadequate. We feel unqualified for the task. Bringing people to God and bringing God to people? I can't do that. I can barely figure that out for my own life. How can I do that job? How can I fulfill that purpose? I feel that myself, and this is my job. To bring God to people and to bring people to God. What a holy calling. How could we feel adequate? How could we have the power and the ability for something like that? Well, look at this imagery that Peter develops. It's right in the heart of the text. 
He develops his image, I think, to show us where the power is found, that he uses building imagery. He's talking about stones and a house and a stone and a cornerstone and builders and a stone. He's pulling all these references together from Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, Isaiah 8. He's kind of choosing all these texts that talk about this stone and cornerstone. And what he's getting at is that the power for priestly life is found at the deepest foundational level of our lives. If you can dig and dig and dig and dig, what is down there in you? What's at the foundational level? There, there are two questions that every person must answer, every Christian must answer. And it's these. On what am I building my identity? On what am I building my purpose? And in verses 6 through 8, Peter says there are only two choices. He says God has laid down a cornerstone who is Jesus. Either we reject him or we build everything on him as our cornerstone. A cornerstone is that first stone that is laid in a building It's the foundation of the foundation. It goes first and everything falls into line with that stone. In a building, can only have one cornerstone. Peter is saying a life can only have one cornerstone. How do we know what's deep, deep down inside of us? Well, it's like like Jenga, the game Jenga. It's the piece that if you take it out, the whole thing crumbles. That's your cornerstone. Jesus is your cornerstone. If you would say, if I take him out of my life, everything crumbles. I will have no identity. I won't know my purpose. The whole building will fall apart because he is my identity and purpose. Peter is saying this kind of life, a life built on Jesus as cornerstone, is a life of power, the power of God's presence, the stones, the house, the priesthood, the sacrifices. This is a picture of the temple where God dwelled in his power and his presence. And he says, if Jesus is your cornerstone, then the power of God, his presence, is with you as he calls you into purpose. So it's almost like a priest is just a middleman. You're just there to say, let me show you who God is. Let me invite you into the house. It's not me. It's him. And what I say and what I do, I'm just trying to get you closer to him. Peter says there's power for that when Jesus is your cornerstone. But we have to ask ourselves, is it Jesus or is it something else? Is it something else that if it gets removed out of our lives, like Jenga, the whole thing crumbles? You feel like you have no purpose, no direction, no idea of who you are, your identity. Peter says, well, that is your real cornerstone. And so we need to ask, how does Jesus get that deep for us that we build everything on him to become our cornerstone? Well, Peter says, we look to him as our priest, our priestly life gains his power because of his priestly life. Jesus was God's chosen and honored and precious priest. He was the one who came to bring us to God and bring God to us. And what was the response? He was rejected. He was put to death. 
his life given as a sacrifice. Why? Well, it's right here. It's so that we and everything we do would be accepted and acceptable to God because we are precious and honored and chosen by him. He would give everything for us. That's his purpose. Why did he do it? What was Jesus' why? Why would he be rejected? Because we were so precious to him. That gives us the power to fulfill the purpose, even when it's hard, even when we struggle, even when we suffer. If Jesus was rejected in order to bring me to God, knowing that I'm that loved and that precious, then I can have the strength and the power and the ability to bring others to God in his name. That's the priestly life. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we hear these incredible statements of who we are, royalty, chosen, belonging to you, a priesthood. I pray that we would allow those things to sink deeply into our hearts where we struggle with our value and our worth and our acceptability. Would you drive it home to us that we are acceptable, worthy, and valuable to you because of Jesus. And I pray that we would also hear your call to a life of purpose, that you would use your word, that you would use this time, that you would use this table to help us see how we can practically work that out with our words, with our actions, in order to give others a taste of how good it is to be yours, of how good it is to be loved by you, and to know that we are precious, honored, and valued to you. Help us have the courage and the boldness. Help us have the wisdom to get out of the way and just lead other people to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll stand over here. Uh, this morning... We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper, what is it? Well, let's see if I can step down here. The Lord's Supper is an incredible visual illustration of the priestly life and ministry of Jesus. It points us back to what he's done for us as our perfect priest, giving his body and his blood, giving everything for us in order to bring us to God. It's once for all. It's complete. It's finished, and on that rests our identity. It also points us to the present moment, to Jesus' priestly ministry for us now, that whatever's happening in our lives, he knows about it. He's interceding for us. He's interceding for you, and he wants to meet with you here at this table to remind you of that and to do that work.
It also points us forward to the future. When one day the priestly ministry of Jesus is complete and he fully brings us in to the presence of God. This is just a foretaste of how good that will be. Who can celebrate communion? This, this meal is for all of those who have come to Jesus, the living stone. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have followed Jesus into the church through baptism or through confirmation of your faith, then this table is for you. You are welcome to this table. If you're here this morning and you are still processing where you are with Jesus, you're still not sure about him, you have questions. We are so glad that you're here this morning. We want this to be a place and a church and a community where you can explore those questions. But we don't want you to do something that is not uh, genuine to where you are at. And so instead of coming forward to partake in this meal, what I would invite you to do is to pray and to reflect. There are prayers for you printed in the bulletin, and I would invite you to use this time to interact with God, to speak with Him, to seek Him for wisdom as to what He's doing in your life. And I would encourage you to come, come to Jesus as your cornerstone. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves of the faith on which we stand, our hope. We do that by reading the words of the Apostles' Creed together. Would you stand with me and let's read from page six in the bulletin. The Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The prayer of thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Please have a seat. On the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The words of institution. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Just a few words about how we celebrate communion here at Trinity. We form two rows down the center aisle. Please take a piece of bread. We have gluten-free bread up front if you need it. Take your cup, return to your seat, and we'll all celebrate, partake, eat, and drink together as a community when everyone finds their seats again. Pastor E.C., would you join me to serve the Lord's Supper?
These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come forward as you're ready. Body of Christ broken for you. The body of Christ was broken.